The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Breaking Down the Evidence in Bladder Cancer, Expert Perspectives and Practical Strategies on Immune, Targeted, and Antibody-Based Therapies, featuring Petros Grivas, MD-PhD, from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Shilpa Gupta, MD, from the Tosic Cancer Institute Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, and Gary D. Steinberg, MD, from NYU Langone Health in New York. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RPD 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thanks, everybody, for joining this evening. We're very, very excited uh, to be with you, uh, and I'm very excited myself here to be surrounded and learned uh, by Dr. Silva Gupta and Dr. Guy Steinberg, who are going to join me today. So as we start here the program, I just want to set the stage by saying we have come a long way in urothelial carcinoma and bladder cancer and upper tract disease, but we still have many shortcomings, right? A lot of challenges that we have to come up with. For example, only one-third of patients with non-muscle vasic disease are given intravesical BCG treatment, and many patients who receive induction therapy may not be able to get maintenance, especially in the context of significant national BCG shortage in the United States right now that impact access to therapy. In muscle vasic disease, many patients do not undergo curative dent therapy, and that's a big issue, right? Patients who undergo radical cystectomy may not offer, be offered side of care, neoadjuvant cystatin-based chemotherapy or concurrent chemoradiation bladder preservation, and patients who get a radical surgery for muscle invasive disease may have impaired quality of life and you know, impaired patient report outcomes. In metastatic disease, we have accesses with healthcare disparities, access to therapy issues, and we have a very low rate of completion of clinical trial enrollment, and many patients, more than half, may not have access to first-line therapy. And many patients who progress on first or second line therapy may not receive subsequent therapies. We published recently that about only 20% of patients make it to second line. That's a big issue, right? We have to improve upon that. And post-immunotherapy therapies are now available, antibody drug conjugates, FGFR inhibitors, but some significant proportion of patients may not receive those important therapies. So today we have a very exciting agenda and then uh, excellent speakers. We're going to discuss the data and early disease, uh, specifically on immunotherapy, and Dr. Steinberg will take the lead in that. We're going to have Dr. Gupta discuss updates in first-line management of advanced urothelial cancer, and I will finish uh, off the evening by defining therapeutic roles of antibody drug conjugates and FGFR inhibitors. So without further delay, we'll give the microphone to our ex ex exceptional and spectacular Dr. Gary Steinberg. He's a professor in the Department of Urology in NYU, New York. Gary, the stage is yours. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be not uh, quarantined and, and to be uh, in a live meeting. Uh, the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer space has changed drastically over the last uh, number of years. And as we know, the vast majority of patients with bladder cancer present initially with non-muscle invasive disease. Uh, this is a trial, Keynote 676, it's with pembrolizumab plus BCG. This is a, a trial that I helped uh, uh, put together and I'm on the steering committee. But essentially we're looking at patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that have received at least one course of BCG, one induction course of BCG. Again, we were trying to look at a real-world population because we know, as, as uh, Petros just said, a lot of patients do not receive adequate BCG and they do not receive maintenance BCG on any schedule. Uh, so this is a randomized trial looking at pembrolizumab and BCG versus BCG alone. Uh, they've added an additional cohort, which is now open, and this additional cohort is in for patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer who are BCG naive, and they'll randomize to BCG plus Pembro versus BCG. Uh, the evidence uh, continues to support immune checkpoint inhibitors in high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Keynote 57 uh, was FDA-approved. Uh, Pembrolizumab was FDA-approved for high-risk BCG unresponsive carcinoma in situ. There is still a cohort B ongoing, which is for papillary high-grade disease, uh, to be randomized, uh, or excuse me, to receive uh, open-label pembrolizumab. But the important part of this study is that this created a new baseline. I personally believe that the treatments for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer in the future will be combination therapy. This is our new baseline. This was FDA approved. And we see that at uh, the complete response rate at three months is around 40%. 
the duration of the response of patients who are disease-free 12 months beyond their complete response is about uh, 45 to 50 percent of those patients. Overall, 19 patients or 19 percent uh, have a durable complete response at 15 months or greater. And with the update, we see that the, of the 39 responders, uh, at 18 months, we still see uh, 13 of 39 continue to be disease-free and even patients who are durable, disease-free beyond 18 months. So this is our new baseline. And again, the outcome from this study, uh, this was a well-done study, but it's consistent with what we see in, with checkpoint inhibitors for all cancers. And then to support that, we have the SWOG S1605, which the headline was that it was a negative trial. Um, but actually, it, 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 this trial supported what we saw with the pembrolizumab trial, in that when you look at a, an unplanned secondary endpoint, the complete response rate at three months was 42%, almost identical to the pembro. Uh, the complete response uh, from the, uh, the primary complete response at six months in this trial was 27%. And then when we look at these patients, uh, the 12-month complete response rate, again, almost identical to Pembro. So I think that we can say that as a class, the checkpoint inhibitors will uh, uh, be incredibly effective in about 20% of patients. And again, we need to look at uh, biomarkers to see who will best uh, respond to these treatments. Uh, now moving gears a little bit into the muscle invasive space, uh, looking at bladder preservation. This is a trial, and this was a multi-center trial, although Arjun Balar uh, at NYU was one of the, the, was the primary investigator. And this looked at patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. They received pembrolizumab up front. They had a maximal TURBT. Uh, again, uh, part of that is to create an additional immune cell death and to help make the radiation uh, more effective. They get received radiation, uh, gemcitabine and pembrolizumab. They received some adjuvant pembrolizumab post-treatment. Uh, this was a well-tolerated trial at the median follow-up of 14.6 months for the efficacy cohort. The primary endpoint of estimated one-year bladder intact disease-free survival was 88%. The complete response rate uh, was 77% at uh, 12 weeks post-radiation therapy. Uh, this is uh, clearly uh, a, a trial that, that, again, is trying to define uh, what, what is possible. Uh, we're still not clear if there's any added benefit from the pembrolizumab, and there's now an ongoing trial comparing, a randomized trial looking at uh, with or without pembrolizumab in bladder preservation. Updates in bladder preservation, neoadjuvant trials in patients with DDR mutations. We had some very nice talks uh, this afternoon about these topics, uh, but there are a number of trials looking at uh, combinations of checkpoint inhibitors, uh, uh, chemotherapy, uh, and so forth to uh, see if we can preserve patients' bladders without a cystectomy. So there's the RETAIN trial and the ALLIANCE trial. Essentially, uh, you have a TURBT. The tumors are sequenced. You look for DNA repair, uh, uh, DNA damage repair mutations, and that if you uh, have DDR mutations and you have a complete clinical response by CT, MR, and biopsies and so forth, you can be placed on active surveillance. Uh, if you have a non-muscle invasive disease despite chemo or despite chemotherapy, you can receive cystectomy uh, or you can receive intravesical therapy or radiation and so forth. And then this is another trial that we have some updates. We have some data, 76 patients. Uh, there were uh, uh, 31 patients had a clinical CR, 33 patients did not have a clinical CR. In the patients with a clinical CR, uh, 30 patients did not undergo cystectomy, one did. And as you can see from the swimmer's plot here, uh, that we have a lot of very interesting data. Uh, this will need to be followed up longer, but we do have a number of patients with no evidence of disease, uh, and there are some patients, however, who did uh, recur. I don't believe there are any patients who developed metastatic disease. Another area of importance in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, but all bladder cancer, is uh, targeted therapy, precision therapy. We know that there are a fair number of FGFR uh, mutations and alterations, especially in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, specifically low-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. But we do see about 30 to 35 percent of patients with papillary high-grade disease will have 
FGFR3 alterations. We also see uh, in about in the muscle invasive space about 15 to 20 percent, and that in the metastatic disease again about 15 to 20 percent. Carcinoma in situ, which is uh, one of the diseases that we study many times in these clinical trials, uh, it's unclear what the FGFR3 alteration rate is. Uh, I think it's probably less than 5%. And this is a trial. I'm the uh, study PI uh, and the uh, uh, steering committee uh, uh, chairman of this trial. We're taking patients who have received intravesical BCG. Ideally, they'll be BCG unresponsive. However, we're looking also at a new definition of patients who are BCG experienced or BCG exposed um, uh, and with papillary disease. And uh, they've got FGFR3 alterations, and they're randomized to erdofitinib, which is an oral agent, versus either mitomycin C or gemcitabine. <laughs> Excuse me. We also are including uh, uh, um, heated uh, mitomycin C. But we're, uh, we're looking at the outcomes of this trial. Uh, we're also looking at a group that has uh, a CIS with or without papillary disease, uh, and, and, a, and, and we're also looking at a marker lesion trial. One of the things that we noticed in this trial was the fair amount of uh, toxicity in the patients and kind of the unwillingness to continue on the trial when we were starting with the 8 milligrams and titrating it up to 9 milligrams. So we've dropped the dose to 6 milligrams and even titrating it down to as low as 4 milligrams. There's data to suggest that that is an adequate dose. Again, we're treating non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and not metastatic disease. And we're seeing a lot more patient uh, acceptance of the uh, treatment. And one of the problems with intravesical chemotherapy in the past has been that the pharmacokinetics of the, of the treatment was that patients uh, received the treatment, they urinated it out, and it was unclear how much of that medication was actually absorbed or became active. Uh, the terrace pretzel allows you to have slow delivery of drugs over a week, two weeks, three weeks, any way that you want to design it. And we've got a number of trials uh, uh, looking using the terrace pretzel with or without uh, cetrilimab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor, and so you've got a trial for non-muscle invasive BCG and responsive, and randomizing the, the terrace pretzel with gemcitabine and centrilimab versus the pretzel alone versus cetrilimab alone, and then we've got a patient population with muscle invasive bladder cancer unfit for cystectomy who are randomized to chemoradiation or the pretzel plus uh, 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 cetrilimab. There are a number of trials looking at FGFR alterations with, in an adjuvant setting. Uh, as we know, we've got some adjuvant IO that's been FDA approved. This is using patients who have FGFR3 alterations. And there's two trials, one with uh, QED and gratinib trial, uh, and then the other with uh, pemigatinib. Both of these are FGFR alterations drugs. Uh, and uh, you've got upper tract disease and or bladder, uh, and patients receive this as an adjuvant therapy. Something that I've uh, discussed uh, and some of the people uh, talk about is, uh, is it okay to have placebo as your control arm? Because we do have some data now about adjuvant therapy and, and uh, high-risk uh, disease uh, and uh, uh, with checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, I think that when you look at FGFR3 alterations, uh, maybe it's, uh, uh, in theory, those patients do not respond to checkpoint inhibitors, theoretically, although there is data to suggest that they may. And so uh, it's, a, it's a question to, to continue to discuss. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy, uh, it's become the standard of care that patients receive cisplatin-based chemotherapy uh, before radical cystectomy or radiation. But again, we know that cisplatin-based chemotherapy is effective, but just not effective in enough patients. And so that overall, while you do see an overall median survival benefit, it probably only truly benefits 30 plus percent of patients, so that we need to move beyond that. And we're doing that with a number of trials looking at combinations of checkpoint inhibitors and chemotherapy or novel agents, including, <coughs> excuse me, uh, BMS has got a nivolumab plus IDO inhibitor, lerotostat. Uh, there's also a Pembro plus EV, uh, infortinibidotin. We've got Nevo plus a Bem, uh, Pegladis, 
it's an IL-2 drug. I can never pronounce that drug anyway. Uh, and then we've got a number of, drug, a number of trials with, uh, uh, it being, uh, with Tremi uh, and um, uh, Dervalumab and so forth. So the future is bright with a lot of combination therapy trials in the neoadjuvant space, and certainly this will also contribute to potential bladder preservation. Uh, looking at disease-free survival and overall survival as endpoints in ongoing adjuvant muscle-invasive bladder cancer trials with uh, PD-L1, PD-1 inhibitors. We know Invigor uh, 010 was a negative trial. We know that Checkmate 274 was a positive trial. And we're still waiting for Ambassador, although the Ambassador trial closed to accrual. Uh, they were close to hitting their, their uh, goal, but they closed to accrual once uh, Nivolumab received the FDA approval uh, in the adjuvant space. With Invigor uh, 010, uh, as spoken about earlier this morning, one of the key findings were that if you had circulating tumor DNA, so that if you had evidence of residual disease, getting uh, atezolizumab was beneficial. When you looked at all comers, there was no added benefit, but if you looked at only the patients with disease, and this is consistent with the PEMBRO uh, trial in uh, uh, multiple myeloma uh, in patients that had disease, did benefit from adjuvant pembrolizumab. And then just looking at uh, uh, the disease-free survival, we see that with nivolumab, there was all comers, whether you were PDL1 high or low, all comers had a significant uh, improvement in uh, disease-free survival, uh, and especially in patients who were PDL1 high. Uh, as with all uh, therapies, uh, there is a benefit, but there's also a potential uh, downside, and so that uh, with adjuvant therapy, checkpoint inhibitors, we know that the class effect, we're going to see some IRAEs uh, approaching um, uh, 10 to 12% or so, uh, and that the most common are skin, and there's diarrhea, colitis, pneumonitis, thyroid conditions, and uh, so forth. And from there, I'm going to turn back to Petros. Excellent job, Gary. Thank you. You did that in a very efficient way. It's like leave us time for a question. Great data, and thank you for presenting those. So let's go to that case who can learn together. So this is a 58-year-old gentleman who presented with hematuria, the most common presentation of bladder cancer, and just here to put the plug for early diagnosis and the need for early workup, you know, for both men and women with hematuria. That's an important point to give to the community out there. So this uh, man had the proper workup with cystoscopy, TURBT, and CAT scan, chest abdominal pelvis high contrast. He ha was found to have a bladder tumor, and uh, the TURBT confirmed muscle invasive disease, uh, muscularized proper invasion. Um, this patient was a good candidate for cisplatin-based chemotherapy, you know, good performance status, good kidney function, no significant hearing loss or neuropathy, and no significant heart failure. So was treated with four cycles of neoadjuvant uh, GEMSYS, and then proceeded with radical cystectomy, cystoprostatectomy to be more specific, and pelvic lymph node dissection. Uh, pathology revealed a YPT3 and 1, so despite the appropriate use of cisplatin-based chemotherapy, in this case with level 1 evidence, this patient seems to have, you know, a platinum refractory disease, biology, based on the T3 and 1 status at the, at the time of surgery. So let me ask here, Gary and Silpa, you know, this obviously was a standard approach here, what are your thoughts when you see patients like this, you know, with, you know, a really advanced stage, despite the proper neoadjuvant chemo? Um, would that be a patient for a clinical trial, adjuvantly, adjuvant evolumab? Uh, Gary, we'll start with you. So this is a very, very common scenario. And again, uh, cisplatin neoadjuvant chemotherapy is good, but clearly there's a lot of room for improvement. And that we woefully understage clinically understage our patients with bladder cancer. So this is actually a very, very common uh, finding. Uh, historically, if you look at the data, this patient will have a very poor outcome with a recurrence of metastatic disease. And many times when you would try to put this patient on a adjuvant therapy trial, by the time they recovered from their cystectomy and that you're restaging them two to three months after their surgery, all too often they do have metastatic disease at the time that you're restaging them. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I think that, that we clearly have a standard of care now with Checkmate 274 nivolumab, and I would try to get those patients 
on the, that as soon as possible. Um, I don't believe that we're going to make any headway with additional chemotherapy. And then last but not least, all of these patients should be sequenced if they haven't been sequenced already. Great points. I think I totally agree with you 100%. Silpine, additional comments? No, I totally echo what Dr. Steinberg just said, would use adjuvenivolumab in this patient. Sounds great. So moving forward here, uh, Dr. Silpa Gupta is going to discuss some exciting data in the frontline metastatic disease. Silpa, I have a question for you, though, before you, before you give your talk. Actually, for both of you. It's an interesting question in the, uh, in the iPad. If you have a patient with upper tract disease, right, not cisplatin fit patient, would you go for adjuvant carbogen? Would you go for adjuvant nevo or a clinical trial? Silpa, I'll ask you first and then Gary. Yeah, as you know, uh, Petros in the upper tract uh, disease data from PAU trial showed advantage for cisplatin-based adjuvant therapy, but not for carboplatin-based. And uh, we have a prospective clinical trial evaluating the utility of FGFR inhibitor in those with FGFR altered or mutated tumors. So I would prefer to enroll on that trial uh, since um, using gem carbo would really not be that effective. And uh, nivolumab is approved in those patients uh, as well. So if trial is not an option, adjuvant nivolumab would be my choice, although in the subgroup analysis, those patients did not benefit that much in the Checkmate 274, albeit the numbers were small. Thanks, Silva. Gary? So, again, as much as we woefully are inadequate in our clinical staging of bladder cancer, or even more so in uh, upper tract disease. And all too often, if you can see something radiographically, uh, while we think that it may be high-grade non-invasive, many times it's not only T2, it's T3 and beyond. Sometimes there are some uh, positive nodes. So I think it's critically important that we try to stage these patients and think about cisplatin-based chemotherapy up front. Having said that, bladder cancer and upper tract uh, urothelial cancer are not the same. They're cousins, but they're not identical twins. And I think that it does call for uh, sequencing these tumors and potentially, if they are FGFR altered, I would favor a, a uh, adjuvant trial with an FGFR3 inhibitor. Thanks, Gary. No, great points. I agree. I think there is probably equipoise there for an adjuvant trial if it's available based on this uh, uh, context that you just answered. And the options for those patients will be carbogem, uncertain uh, benefit with a PAU trial in this subset analysis, the question about NIVO in that subset of patients, and of course, uh, uh, the question of trial. And a very quick uh, answer here. Someone asked, did patients on the Checkmate 274 trial um, uh, get nivolumab if they never received nivolumab chemo? And the answer is these patients were allowed if they were not fit for cisplatin, uh, and they are not fit for cisplatin for the adjuvant setting, they were allowed to get uh, adjuvant therapy on the Checkmate 274 trial. So I think it's cisplatin eligibility fitness is important in the context of adjuvant nivolumab, I think, based on the Checkmate 274 trial that Gary presented. Silpa, now we'll uh, let you uh, guide us through the very, very exciting data, uh, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Petros. I'm really um, excited to talk about updates in the first-line management of advanced urothelial cancer. So the current state of immunotherapy in metastatic urothelial cancer has really evolved over the last few years. Uh, for newly diagnosed patients who are eligible to receive cisplatin, the current Category 1 evidence is for gemcitabine and cisplatin to be used in these patients, followed by evalumab maintenance based on the Javelin Bladder 100 trial. And if patients uh, get any cisplatin-based regimen like dose-dense-MVAC with growth factor support, that's reasonable as well. Both are Category 1 uh, recommendations as long as patients receive evalumab if they have not progressed. For newly diagnosed patients who are not cisplatin eligible, and we see this to be around 50% of our patients, gemcitabine and carboplatin followed by evalumab maintenance is the category one recommendation. And for patients who are not eligible to receive any platinums, atezolizumab and pembrolizumab are uh, reasonable single uh, agent options. And for patients who've had prior chemotherapy, are relapsed within one year of perioperative or adjuvant cisplatin. Pembrolizumab is the Category 1 recommendation, although nivolumab and avalumab are also approved, but they don't have Category 1 uh, recommendation. Therapy has really evolved in locally advanced and metastatic urothelial cancer. After a long void of four decades when we did not have any novel therapies, 
In 2016, uh, we saw the first immunotherapy approved, and since then there's been ex explosive growth in the approvals of immunotherapy and novel targeted therapies. We had five checkpoint inhibitors approved in 2017. In 2019, Adafitinib, which is an FGFR3 inhibitor, was approved, and the antibody drug conjugate and fortimavidontin was approved same year. And in 2021, another antibody drug conjugate, sakituzumab govotecan, was approved. And last year, we saw the approval of evalumab maintenance. Want to highlight here that atezolizumab and nervalumab were voluntarily withdrawn for second-line indication due to lack of benefit in confirmatory trials. And pembrolizumab and atezolizumab are now uh, only recommended for patients who are ineligible for platinum, although atezolizumab could still be considered for high PDL1 patients, although not preferable. There are multiple uh, trials that have looked at uh, incorporating immunotherapy into frontline urothelial cancer, and I'll quickly highlight some of the trials that have resulted. The Invigor 130 study, which uh, enrolled 1,200 patients, compared atezolizumab and chemotherapy combination to single-agent atezolizumab or placebo and platinum-based chemotherapy. We saw a modest progression-free survival, but no OS survival so far, so we're still waiting for the final results. Keno 361 trial was a similar patient population looking at pembrolizumab and platinums versus pembrolizumab or just platinums. Unfortunately, this was a negative trial, did not meet the overall survival or progression-free survival uh, endpoints. Danube was a um, trial looking at just immunotherapy doublets, dervalumab and temilumumab compared to dervalumab versus standard of care chemotherapy. And this trial was also reported to be negative. So, so far we've seen that chemotherapy was not inferior to any of the combination approaches, unlike lung cancer. And the Checkmate 901 trial, which is comparing nivolumab and ipilimumab to nivolumab plus gem cis or carboplatin versus standard of care chemo is still ongoing, and we should uh, see the results in the coming uh, months. Now, despite successes in other tumor types with chemoimmunotherapy combinations in urothelial cancer, we have not yet shown that in the phase three trials. So there's a question of sequencing approach. Is lead-in chemotherapy followed by sequencing of immunotherapy a better approach? And this is the pivotal trial, the Javelin Bladder 100 trial, which used the switch maintenance approach after frontline platinum-based chemotherapy. So patients who received frontline platinums and did not progress after that were randomized to avalumab versus best supportive care, and primary endpoint was overall survival. And this trial showed a seven-month improvement in overall survival in all comers with avalumab compared to best supportive care, and the overall survival in the pdl one positive subgroup was not reached. So this is the current standard of care. And across the subgroups, the benefit was observed, regardless of PDL1 status and regardless of the choice of chemotherapy and the number of chemotherapy cycles, whether four or six. And this was FDA-approved last year to treat patients with localized, uh, locally advanced or metastatic urothelial cancer who do not progress after frontline platinums. So what immunotherapy options are available in frontline setting? As mentioned before, First-line platinum-based chemotherapy is the preferred option for patients if they are eligible. A switch maintenance strategy enables more patients to receive an immune checkpoint inhibitor as a part of frontline therapy uh, versus reserving that option for second-line therapy, considering there's a significant attrition and lack of reliable biomarker to progression. Treatment-free interval between the end of chemotherapy and start of evalumab in the Javelin Bladder 100 trial was 4 to 10 weeks, and overall survival and progression-free survival was ben benefit was observed regardless of uh, multiple factors. And despite this, there's a 15 to 20% patients who will ultimately progress despite these approaches. And survival rates are low for patients with metastatic disease who progress after platinum-based chemotherapy. Pembrolizumab monotherapy is approved and has a level one evidence in the second-line setting based on the Keynote 045 study, which showed significantly improved overall survival compared to standard of care chemotherapy. Nivolumab and Avalumab are approved. However, uh, they have not shown benefit in phase three settings. 
And this is the pivotal trial for pembrolizumab approval in second-line metastatic urothelial cancer. As you can see here, the response rates were 22% with pembrolizumab compared to only 11% with chemotherapy. Complete response rates were 27% compared to 8% with chemo. And um, the tolerability was, of course, much better than the chemotherapy. Now, coming to the topic of uh, immune-related adverse events, we know that immunotherapy in general is extremely well-tolerated compared to chemotherapy. However, it can have a unique set of side effects because of the mechanism of action. And pretty much any organ system can be affected by immunotherapy. The most commonly occurring side effects are gastrointestinal like diarrhea, enterocolitis, transaminitis, hepatitis, pneumonitis, uh, and skin uh, side effects like rash, pruritus, blisters, and a wide variety of endocrine abnormalities, uh, which can sometimes be very subtle to detect, but easy to manage. And supporting effective communication amongst multidisciplinary healthcare teams is really crucial to managing immune-related adverse events. And we have to be cognizant that immune-related AEs can occur any time following initiation. Even when patients stop immunotherapy, Months later, they could present with an immune-related adverse event. And um, we have to always keep it at the back of our minds that it could be from immunotherapy. Always uh, do a multidisciplinary uh, referral approach. Uh, even though all oncologists are really good at managing uh, side effects, it's really important to involve the specialties like gastroenterology, dermatology, endocrinology when appropriate. So some of the recommended strategies for managing uh, immune-related adverse events have now been widely available via ASCO, NCCN, CITCN, ESMO guidelines. So if anything is very mild or grade one, we can consider immunotherapy or temporarily hold it. There is really no dose reduction of immunotherapy. And we treat the patient symptomatically. If there's a rash, we could give topical steroids. No uh, definite need for systemic steroids at that time. For grade 2, which is uh, more uh, symptomatic, we should withhold immunotherapy and initiate systemic corticosteroids at a dose of half to 1 milligram equivalent of uh, prednisone per kilogram, taper steroids uh, over one month or as appropriate depending on clinical symptoms and resolution. And if toxicity resolves to grade 1 or lower, we could re-challenge with immunotherapy. And for grade 3 and 4, which are really very severe and uh, may require hospitalization, we have to discontinue immunotherapy, promptly hospitalize the patient, not to worry about um, high-dose corticosteroids uh, impacting efficacy because they don't. And the treatment of uh, dose for prednisone in such cases is 1 to 2 mg per kilogram or equivalent and taper it very slowly. And... Uh, We've seen from a variety of diseases that patients who develop uh, significant immune-related adverse events are paradoxically the better responders. So um, we really have to be uh, very vigilant to treat these patients instead of worrying about effect affecting the immunotherapy efficacy. And there's a lot of other immunosuppressive uh, treatments available like anti-TNF therapy, infliximab, mycophenolate, butizonide, and uh, involving the appropriate subspecialties is uh, the best thing to do. So for practical tips for mitigating and managing immune-related adverse events are uh, pretty uh, simple pre-medication with antihistamine and acetaminophen for patients who've had infusion reactions in the past. Evalumab is notorious for uh, infusion-related reactions, so one could also do it preemptively. Monitor patients closely uh, with each visit, even if the patient is doing well, immune-related adverse events can happen any time. Monitor their labs uh, frequently. Query patients about symptoms because patients do tend to uh, under-report side effects from immunotherapy. And uh, be vigilant for signs and symptoms of pneumonitis or colitis. And um, consult the published guidelines. I'll hand over to Dr. Grievous to take it from here. Thank you so much, Dr. Gupta. Fantastic uh, efficiency. And uh, Dr. Gupta is an associate professor in Cleveland Clinic and has done tremendous work in the field. Um, so, um, and also, Silpa, I think that one of the first immunotherapy-related adverse event tumor boards 
was in Cleveland Clinic, you know, where you are, and this is a great resource. Thanks to you, Petros. Uh, it's, a, it's a great teamwork, and as Dr. Gupta mentioned, I think involving the specialist early on is very important, so absolutely great point there. Uh, I think uh, that's an interesting case. An 81-year-old gentleman with chronic kidney disease, creatinine clearance below 30, that's pretty low, uh, ECOG-PS of 2, uh, PDL1 low based on the CPS score, only 1, uh, current smoker despite cancelling and against smoking, type 2 diabetes mellitus and no history of autoimmune disease, no steroids, uh, present with hematuria, found to have a bladder tumor, uh, TURBT so urothelial carcinoma, uh, this was a T3 disease based on imaging and a TUR evaluation, and uh, sadly there was evidence of parathetic disease at the time of diagnosis, so retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy and pelvic lymphadenopathy at the same time. Uh, Dr. Gupta, we'll start with you. I know you led an, a very important effort uh, in 2019 trying to define patients who are not eligible for platinum, cis and carboplatin. Uh, based on that work you led, any comments on this case? How would you approach, uh, approach this patient? I think given uh, that this patient has a creatinine clearance of less than 30, 80-year-old uh, man with ECOG performance status of 2, um, you know, would be he hesitant to use carboplatin um, really in this patient and this is the patient we could define truly as a platinum ineligible patient, and uh, single-agent use of pembrolizumab or atezolizumab would be reasonable. Uh, Dr. Steinberg, any comments? Well, I think Dr. Gupta uh, uh, picked up on the key points. 81 years old, multiple medical problems, poor performance status, chronic renal insufficiency, diabetes, current smoker. Um, I, I would be concerned about... about Carbo as well, and, and uh, uh, I, th I think that that uh, you don't lose anything uh, by starting them on Pembro. I think I, I think I agree with both Dr. Gupta and Dr. Steinberg here. You know, one of the criteria that came up from this consensus survey uh, that uh, Dr. Gupta led was these patients with poor performance status equal PS of two and creatinine clearance below thirty. These are challenging situations, so I think, um, uh, I think, I think about checkpoint inhibitor is a very reasonable option, and pembrolizumab or atezolizumab are uh, FDA-approved options in that setting, and of course, you know, doing clinical trials in this population is hard, and it's an important point that if we can get more options for those patients will be great. Um, I have a question here, actually, uh, for Dr. Steinberg. It's from the previous session, but I think we can tackle it. Um, where do you see the impact of intravesical gemcitabine with or without immunotherapy that's an interesting question because gemcitabine may impact myelodirapsa pressure cells, MDSCs. Can, be, you know, can suppress MDSCs and be immunostimulatory? Any comments on that question? Well, I, I think that, that uh, the key is, is not only the drug but the delivery. And so that there is data to suggest that the slow, continuous delivery of gemcitabine will uh, suppress T regulatory cells in MDSCs. Uh, in addition, you may be creating, you know, our, our, our goal, golden uh, ring, which is immune cell death, and so that you may have kind of three-pronged uh, uh, immunologic effect as well as cytotoxic effect on the urothelial cancer. And then uh, if you're truly uh, turning on um, immune cell death, you, you may need a checkpoint inhibitor. And so I think that the trials that are designed are with uh, the gemcitabine alone, or gemcitabine plus the uh, plus citrilamab or citrilamab alone, and I, th I think it's a nice design to answer a number of questions. Uh, is is the gemcitabine solely a cytotoxic? Uh, you know, it's a analog nucleoside analog, or is it also immun immunologically uh, active? And, and I think that that uh, if it is, then I think that uh, uh, should get some synergy. That's a great point. And uh, actually, this question brings to my mind, uh, Dr. Steinberg, Dr. Gupta, we have a new adjuvant upper track trial that we just designed with Dr. Hoffman Sensitz from Johns Hopkins in the ECOC-Actin group, ECOC-Actin A2192, and has a splatin-eligible cohort with dosdensenvac plus minus durvalumab, and a splatin-ineligible population, about 30 patients will get durvalumab plus zemcitabine as a new adjuvant therapy before radical nephrourectomy. So we'll find out there uh, if there is any value. So thank you for the comments.
So I'll take it on here to discuss some really, really exciting updates in metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Usually, you know, platinum-based chemotherapy, as Dr. Gupta mentioned, is the initial treatment, and of course, sequel inhibition, as he talked about, has significant role. But what about antibody drug conjugates and FGF7 inhibitors? I think these are very, very exciting agents and established role in this disease. I think it's important to, uh, to make the point here that you know, both urologic oncologists and medical oncologists have very important roles in co-managing and educating the patients on the important genomic testing. Dr. Steinberg mentioned before that in patients who have you know, no positive disease after a neoadjuvant chemoencystectomy in support to get the generation sequencing, NGS done, uh, to look for potential targets for clinical trials, but also uh, to inform potential therapy decisions in the metastatic disease setting. And one of those targets is FGFR, specifically FGFR2 and FGFR3, activated mutation infusion, which is a target for erdafitinib that we'll talk in a second. And there are two ways to check for those biomarkers. You see their RT-PCR chiagen test, which is a companion assay that was uh, approved uh, by the FDA along with erdafitinib, and also more comprehensive NGS panels. And uh, Dr. Gupta, any preference on how you approach genomic testing and when do you test? Yeah, I think the sooner we test, the better. At, at, um, in my practice, I tend to test them when patients have metastatic disease, uh, just to keep an option open for later on. As far as the platform used, we typically use the available NGS and not necessarily the Kaigen. But, but it's an option for sure. Dr. Steinberg, would you do the same? Uh, well, I think in the, in the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients, I think probably I would use the uh, companion diagnostic uh, uh, from Janssen. Uh, but I think that if I had my druthers, I, I would probably want to get sequencing, uh, you know, uh, either Foundation One or uh, interinstitutional uh, sequencing. I agree with you. I think in metastatic disease, I do the next generation sequencing to get a broader panel to look for other targets too that may inform subsequent clinical trials, including the FGFR2 and 3 alterations. And I do it at the time of diagnosis of metastatic disease, unless I do it earlier to screen for an adjuvant clinical trial that Dr. Steinberg mentioned before. So there is a plethora, Greek word, right, of uh, there's a good number of FGF receptor inhibitors that have been tested in metastatic urothelial cancer. And you see here a response rates across different trials. I always caution, you know, the trainees, you know, don't compare across different trials. There are different selection confounding factors. But as you see here, you know, there's definitely data uh, with activity among different, uh, among different FGF receptor inhibitors. And we have seen a similar story with checkpoint inhibitors that we have activity across different agents, showing that the class of these agents are active in this disease. Specifically, based on the BLC2001 trial, we have an accelerated approval of erdafitinib for patients with metastatic urothelial cancer with FGFR2 or FGFR3 activating mutation or fusion after progression of platinum-based chemotherapy. So platinum refractory disease, and just to make the point here, is not FGFR1, it's only FGFR2 and 3, and it's not amplification, it's only activating mutation or fusion. But you see activity across different um, agents here, and infigratinib is being tested in the adjuvant setting in the proof 302 trial that Dr. Steinberg presented before. So what is the data behind the accelerated approval of erdafitinib in platinum refractory disease? This was a BLC2001 trial. This was published in the New Journal of Medicine by Dr. Lorio and colleagues two years ago. These are patients with metastatic disease. They are platinum refractory, so they have platinum-based chemotherapy, most of them. Uh, and prior immunotherapy was permitted. The dose that went forward was the 8 milligrams once a day until progression or unacceptable toxicity. So the third box there on the right, 8 milligrams once a day. That's a starting dose. As you see in the next slide, in this Schlimmer's plot, you have an overall response rate of 40% in this platinum refractory disease. Again, these are patients selected based on the FGFR2 or 3 activating mutation or fusion. Most of them were partial responses, uh, the vast majority. And among the 22 patients, small sample size, who have a prior checkpoint inhibition, the confirmed response rate with erdafitinib was 59%. So very promising number there. Obviously, this was a single arm, not under my study, uh, but you see some patients have durable response. And as you see here, based on duration of response and the promising signal of survival in this single arm study, um, um, showing that erdafitinib has activity, this led to the accelerated approval of this agent for patients with those uh, biomarker-positive disease. And the activity of erdafitinib was regardless of the alteration type, mutation or fusion, tumor location, of, uh, upper tract or lower tract, 
presence or absence of visceral disease and prior treatment with checkpoint inhibition. Now, uh, as uh, I mentioned before, there is a lot of activity in this field, and despite the accelerated approval that happened in the platinum refractory disease setting, there is ongoing effort to further evaluate the role of FGFI inhibitors, even in the frontline setting. So Dr. Pauls presents some very interesting data from the Phase two NORSE trial at ESMO 2021, about three months ago. These are patients in the frontline setting, not fit for cisplatin, and they were selected based on the mutation or fusion of FGFR2 and 3. They have measurable disease. And again, first line, no prior therapy for, uh, for advanced disease. And they got randomized to erdafitinib 8 milligrams once a day, or the combination of erdafitinib plus cetrelimab and checkpoint inhibitor. And that's an interesting to see whether the combination may give some synergistic effects. Primary endpoint was overall survival, I'm sorry, it was overall response rate and safety. And key secondary endpoints was disease control rate, duration of response. Survival was looked up as an exploratory endpoint but the primary part was response rate. As you see, this is a small sample size, only 37 patients, 18 on ERDA alone, 19 on erdafitinib plus trelimab, so keep that you know, with a grain of salt because of small sample size here, but the response rate is double. It's 68% with a combination of erdafitinib plus trelimab and 33% uh, with erdafitinib. This is frontline setting, cisplatin ineligible patients, so definitely a promising signal despite the small sample size with the anti-FGFR uh, um, and the checkpoint inhibition. Uh, the median duration of response was about seven months with a combination, and the disease control rate was very high. You see 90 to 100% in both groups. So definitely interesting data. Again, small sample size, we need longer follow-up and sa larger sample size, but the combination looks very promising, and this reminds me of some other data uh, from Dr. Rosenberg looking at, think, at another FGFR inhibitor, rogoratinib, plus atezolizumab, uh, that uh, also showed some very uh, interesting data in platinum refractory disease. So I think it's interesting to follow along and see whether this combination of uh, inhibiting FGFR and checkpoint inhibition, whether it will have future. For the, for the present, though, it remains experimental only in clinical trials. And speaking about clinical trials, the approval of accelerated approval uh, of erdafitinib was the first step, but there is a confirmatory trial to see whether this will be regular approval or not. And this takes patients uh, who have metastatic disease and they have screening for FGFR two or three mutation or fusion, and they get randomized. There are two randomizations. One is erdafitinib versus chemotherapy, vinflin or docetaxel. These are patients who had prior immunotherapy, uh, as you see, and no more than two prior lines of therapy. And the second randomization is erdafitinib versus Pembro, and that's an interesting uh, comparison there for patients with platinum refractory disease to find what is the best second-line option for those patients. So you go for erdafitinib or checkpoint inhibition in the platinum refractory second-line setting. We don't have any data yet, but we're looking forward to the results of that trial. Like extra attention, toxicity profile of all these agents. Erdafitinib has some unique features uh, we have to keep in mind. Uh, it's important to maintain optimal oral hygiene. Mucositis, stomatitis uh, can be a frequent adverse event of erdafitinib. Very important to monitor for skin and nail toxicities, referring to dermatology and podiatry if needed. Early on, I think it's, we, we have a dermatologist uh, in our cancer center, and I can tell you we frequent discuss with them and refer patients, both for antibody drug conjugates and uh, erdafitinib. And of of course, very important to have best supportive care and close monitoring and educate the patient to avoid underreporting. It's very common for those patients to underreport because they want to stay on treatment. And so we have to educate them to make sure they call us right away. And, you know, advanced practice providers, nurses, uh, physicians all have a role in this uh, mission. Hyperphosphatemia is a class effect. So we have patients who develop high phosphorus level on FGF receptor inhibitors. We recently published some data with infigratinib, another FGF receptor inhibitor with Dr. Pal and Dr. Liu, and we showed that the higher the phosphorus level, higher chance of response, but you still have to manage the hyperphosphatemia, right? It's like hypertension and axitinib in kidney cancer. You have to manage the blood pressure. So um, this is a pharmacodynamic effect because you uh, inhibit the FGF receptor in kidney and you uh, may affect the reabsorption of phosphorus. So uh, we have to uh, educate the patients, uh, send them to nutritionists, to dietitians if possible, uh, and uh, have them follow a low phosphorus diet. Uh, and if need be, depending on the level of phosphorus, you may need to give a non-calcium containing phosphate binder like Cevelamer or something else. So keep a close eye and you have to do blood work two weeks or three weeks after you start this agent in order to see the phosphorus level for two reasons. Number one is toxicity management, right? To manage the hyperphosphatemia. The other is one is because you may actually tweak the dose. You have a, a check of labs, and if you have 
no greater higher toxicity and you have no visual eye toxicity at two or three weeks and your phosphor is below 5.5, you can increase the dose from 8 milligrams to 9 milligrams. Sounds a small increase, but actually have shown in the uh, BLC 2001 trial to have impact on response rate. So there's a dose titration that you can do based on toxicity and also based on the phosphorus level. Which brings the point that ocular toxicity is a very important point here. Patients should see an ophthalmologist at baseline before they started the fitinib to look at the cornea, the retina, do an optical CT, uh, and look you know, with the dilated eye exam because you want to make sure there's no underlying uh, cornea retina pathology. And I send these patients to ophthalmology at baseline, and I ask them to be seen monthly for the first four months, and then every three months thereafter, unless they need to be seen more frequently if there is any challenge or any toxicity. I also give them an absolute grid, which is a grid with a black dot in the middle, and they put it in, the, you know, in their kitchen every morning. They look at them, and they skin for blurry vision, which I think is very important to do that for um, education of patients and screening for blurry vision. Uh, blurry vision is, uh, even if it happens, it usually goes away if you stop the drug, so it's exceedingly rare to have any, you know, real permanent issue there, but it's important to catch it early on if it happens. So absolutely agreed, and ophthalmologists are important. And the central retinopathy happens in about a quarter of those patients, uh, usually grade one, grade two, but it's important to follow the package insert and hold offer dafitinib, and, you know, if you have uh, no resolution within a month, you may need to stop the drug, and of course you have grade four, you have to stop it uh, permanently, but this collaboration, right, with especially ophthalmologists in that case, which may be hard to find, to be honest, in, in some community practices, is a key in, in managing this toxicity. I think it's, but it's important to, you know, also to keep the patients on, on treatment if they do well, if they have no toxicity. So I'm going to move forward here. We talk about adafitinib and the accelerated approval. It's an option for our patients who use it in clinical practice, but we also use antibiotic drug conjugates, and two of them have approval in metastatic urothelial cancer. Infortumavidotin has a regular approval uh, based on phase three trial data with level one evidence in patients with platinum refractory and immunotherapy refractory disease. And this is an anti-nectin-4 antibody drug conjugate, targets nectin-4, has a very potent link here, uh, which is probably as cleavable, linked to the MMAE, which is a microtubule inhibitor, and this is releasing, you know, the, this payload, this chemotherapy drug, into the uh, cancer cells that express the target nectin-4. Such tusmogovitikan, we heard earlier today from Dr. Tagawa, is a different uh, antibody drug conjugate, has accelerated approval in uh, patients with platinum refractory immunotherapy refractory disease, and the target here is different. It's TROP2, which also expressed in the membrane of urothelial cancer cells, had the hydrolyzable linker, and the payload is different. It's SN38, with the active metabolite of rinotecan, a toposomerase 1 inhibitor. So different toxicity profiles between the two drugs based on the mechanism of action. So this is the phase 3 EV301 trial. I want to make the point here that there was a phase 2 trial called EV201 that actually had two cohorts, cohort 1 and cohort 2. Cohort 1 led to the accelerated approval of enfortumavidotin uh, in the third-line space, and cohort 2 led to a recent FDA approval of the second-line space for patients who had prior therapy and they're not fit for cisplatin. So EV201 was two cohorts, phase 2 trial, and we have two approvals uh, based on that uh, uh, trial. And the phase three was the EV301, the confirmatory trial. Uh, and for Pobedotin, this antibody drug conjugate against nectin-4 uh, was compared to uh, taxane single agent or vifrin in Europe. And the primary point was overall survival. Of course, PFS and response rate and safety were also looked at. The trial was positive, again, third line and beyond, and formavidotin uh, was superior compared to taxane or vinflunin in the third and beyond line space. Overall survival benefit with hazard ratio 0.70. Uh, there was also significant PFS benefit, zero, hazard ratio 0.62, and significant difference in response rate, more than double response rate with formavidotin compared to taxane or vinflunin, and uh, there were no new safety signals in that phase three trial compared to the phase two trial. Of course, we have to think about the adverse events of, that, uh, of all the agents, specifically with enfortumab, skin reactions, skin rash. There's an FDA black box about a rare, not common, but can happen, uh, uh, Stephen Johnson syndrome. We have to keep an eye on skin toxicity. It's usually mild to moderate. Uh, peripheral neuropathy, hyperglycemia that could be life-threatening. Uh, and it's rare, about 5% of patients, but keep an eye on the glucose, of course, and um, uh, some other side effects that uh, are published, like fatigue and anorexia. But overall, I think this agent uh, has you know, an established role with level one evidence in the third line space. And as I mentioned, it has also an approval by the FDA in the second line space in patients who are not fit for cisplatin and they had prior therapy. Um, so, so second line or third line. 
So keep an eye, you know, it's, I think it's, a, it's an important tool for our patients, and we see significant symptomatic benefit as well, palliative benefit with this agent uh, early on. Another important drug conjugate, as I mentioned, is Satsuzon uh, Govitikan. Dr. Tagao did a great job earlier today discussing the data from cohort one. Cohort one was uh, patients with a prior platinum-based chemotherapy uh, and checkpoint inhibition, uh, and uh, the third line or beyond, many of them had multiple prior therapies. Cohort two, we have some early data from Dr. Petrulak, is still ongoing. It's the second line, septuzmogovitikan, in patients with prior checkpoint inhibition. So cohort two is still ongoing. Cohort three, are patients who had platinum-based uh, chemotherapy, uh, first line, and the second line, they got Pembrolizumab plus astuzumab. So a combination, Pembro plus astuzumab, uh, this is cohort three. We don't have any data yet. Cohort four is in, uh, cisplatin plus astuzumab in the frontline setting. And we also have cohort five looking also at maintenance, astuzumab plus avelumab. So we have a lot of data coming up from this trial. Uh, the overall response rate, we published this paper with Dr. Tagao and JCO a few months ago, and that led to accelerate approval of this agent in the uh, third line and beyond space. Uh, and you see that the response rate uh, was 27% in a heavily treated population with multiple prior therapies, and uh, about three-quarters of the patients had reduction in the tumor size, and we have seen you know, um, uh, responses across different uh, locations of metastasis. As you see in the swimmer's plot, some uh, responses may be durable. Median duration of response was more than seven months. Median PFS, 5.4. Median OS, 11 months. Obviously, this is a single phase to study, so we have to take the PFS and OS with a grain of salt. The uh, Toxicity profile is a bit different uh, in neutropenia. There was about 10% febrile neutropenia in the study, but it's usually managed with uh, growth factor or with dose uh, reduction. Uh, anemia, uh, about 14%, and uh, diarrhea can happen. About 10% uh, of patients had grade 3 uh, diarrhea, uh, which is something to keep in mind. And it reminds you of you know, the toxicity of renotecan, right, for those who are treated uh, GI malignancies. So the accelerated approval uh, by the FDA uh, is now followed by phase three trial called Tropic 04. We present this trial before in a previous meeting uh, as a trial in progress. This is similar to the EV301 trial that led to the regular approval in form of a dotin. So this trial is such to govitikan single agent uh, when the uh, FDA approved dose 10 milligrams per kilogram, days one and eight on a 21 day cycle versus taxane or vifling the primary point of overall survival. Uh, this is patients in the third line and beyond. So these patients may have received in form of a dose in, uh, based on physician discretion. Uh, and uh, the, as I mentioned, we're going to look at overall survival as well as uh, plethora of other endpoints. So uh, antibody drug conjugates are being tested in different disease settings. We have AV103, uh, Pembro plus EV, very promising data, 93% disease control rate, frontline settings, patent eligible patients. We have randomized cohort data coming up in the future from EV103 and the EV302, which is Pembrolizumab plus EV versus chemotherapy. And recently we heard that metanasavelumab is allowed in the chemotherapy control group. Earlier in the muscle invasive disease space, uh, pembrolizumab plus in form of edotin, uh, uh, followed by stectomy and then adjuvant therapy, interesting trial to look at. And uh, the, uh, we discussed uh, about the uh, neoadjuvant uh, uh, option to test the antibody drug conjugate. So we have satsuzumab govidecan plus minus pembrolizumab as a neoadjuvant therapy for radical stectomy in patients who are cisplatin uh, ineligible. And we have also a combination of ipinevo plus satsuzumab being tested in frontline setting metastatic disease for cisplatin ineligible patients. So, as I mentioned before, different toxicity profiles from different agents. Keep an eye, you know, uh, of course, in the back of inserts, peripheral neuropathy. Uh, usually, is um, something usually is, uh, improves when you hold the drug, but you be very, very careful. I personally have a low threshold to dose reduce uh, if I see neuropathy with a form of edodin. Keep a close on hyperglycemia. About 5% of patients get hyperglycemia. can be potentially life-threatening, so keep an eye on that. And skin rash usually mild to moderate, but rarely you can have Steven Johnson. So keep an eye on it to optimize the, the management of the patient. Satsusmagovitikan, bone marrow suppression, uh, usually managed with those reductions to hold, and or growth factor support, and diarrhea, education, hydration, add diarrhea medications. You have to rule out infection sometimes. So we'll go quickly here in this patient, a 68-year-old uh, lady with metastatic disease, got frontline gem seeds for six cycles, had partial response, and has some new neuropathy symptoms because of cisplatin probably, went on with switch metanasavelumab, as Dr. Gupta mentioned, this has level one evidence, and had symptomatic progression about a year later with uh, back pain, uh, imaging showed some bone mats and also liver metastasis, and GS of the bladder tumor tissue showed an activating mutation in FGFR3. 
Uh, so the patient has no eye, skin, or nail, or GI issues, and ha- is diabetic with a hemoglobin in C9%. Dr. Gupta, what would you do? Yes, uh, Petro. So this patient um, had good response to chemo, but had neuropathy as a complication, and switch maintenance evalumab um, progressed through it. Um, given that the patient has FGFR3 um, mutation, erdafitinib is a very reasonable choice uh, in this case. And um, so is sacituzumab govotecan. You know, at some point, patient will need uh, sequencing with both those therapies. We just don't know uh, which sequence is better, but uh, one could start with adafetinib. Dr. Steinberg, any comments? I suspect that ultimately the patient will see uh, infortinavidotin, and potentially, if that's not effective, uh, sacituzumab govotecan. But I suspect that uh, ultimately they will be placed on it for tenofovir. sure. And you know, with the activating mutation of FGFR3, would you know, would would you think that people would favor the target therapy first, especially in the context of neuropathy and high hemoglobin O1C, or you think that you can still go for infortinib? You know, the, the the thing that I've seen, which is truly amazing, is a kind of rapid response to EV in patients with liver and bone mats that I don't think you see uh, as much with erdafitinib. Uh, 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 Interesting, and you know, as as you both said, we don't have we don't know the optimal sequence of those patients. You know, especially with a mutation, right? We have level one evidence with infortumab in all comers. Uh, we but the optimal sequence in those with a activating MCFR three mutation is still to be defined. In those, you know, erdafitinib can be an option, infortumab can be an option, sacituzumab can be an option. So uh, this is the same scenario, uh, but in this case, you don't have MCFR two or three mutation. So in this second case, erdafitinib is out. Um, and then it probably comes down to Enfortumab versus Sachituzumab. Uh, any comments on, on, on how would you? I would say yeah. that Enfortumab, no doubt, is very effective. But given the neuropathy, we might want to use Sachituzumab first. And when neuropathy gets better, use Enfortumab. Like Dr. Steinberg said, this patient is most likely going to see all different therapies um, in uh, her journey. Great discussion, and that's why we need, you know, more real-world data to see what happens in real practice, right, and how many patients can be captured, you know, and, and receive all these important therapies. It's great to see the data from all these uh, trials really, pan, you know, panning out. Let's see what we have next here. I have some key takeaways, and I have a couple of questions for you uh, uh, to learn from you, Dr. Gupta and Dr. Seinberg, before we leave. So immune checkpoint inhibition with FDA-approved agents across therapy settings has had a significant impact in the management of patients with bladder cancer. In BCGR-responsive CIS, we have about a 20% ballpark durable clinical complete response rate uh, with pembrolizumab based on the Kino 057 trial that led to the FDA approval of this agent in this disease. And we have a similar result from the SOC 1605, but at the is not FDA approved uh, uh, in that setting. And data from Nadofaragin Fredenovec and the Opportuzumab Bonadox, it's probably in the ballpark. So we'll see what happens with those agents. In muscle invasive disease, significant disease survival benefit of adjuvant evolumab is FDA approved now, regardless of pedulant status or receipt of neoadjuvant based chemotherapy, uh, and this is on, based on the Checkmate 274 trial that we presented a few minutes ago. In metastatic disease, uh, plantum-based chemotherapy is probably the treatment for most patients up front, and switch maintenance of Elumab is standard of care, regardless of if they got gem or gem-carbo, and in my bias, regardless of CR, PR, or stable disease, I think all these patients benefit with significant uh, benefit, but with different degree of benefit based on response to stable disease. Uh, and uh, atezolizumab pembrolizumab has a role in the frontline setting, as Dr. Gupta mentioned, mostly in patients with platinum-ineligible uh, scenarios when you cannot give cyst or carbo. Atezolizumab has the option to be given in cisplatin unfit pedulone high patients based on the ventana SQN42 assay. FDA-approved non-immune therapy agents include edafitinib, FGFR inhibitor, and fortmovedotin, again, level one evidence based on the v 301 trial, and sestuzmogovitic and accelerate approval based on the TROPHY user one cohort one trial. And there are important options for those patients uh, with pretreated disease. Each agent has unique uh, adverse event profiles, FDA level indications, and management strategies. And all members of the healthcare team are very important to be familiar with this mechanism of action, the range the, and the different types of adverse events to allow prompt timely recognition, education of the patient, and optimal management of the adverse events, which I think is very important. So very quickly, we have a couple of minutes, maybe a few seconds left. Uh, first question here. With TROP2 being expressed in muscle invasive disease, 
Is Hashtuzma being studied in muscle basic disease? The answer is yes. There are some neoadjuvant trials going on that's very interesting, looking at antibody drug conjugates, Hashtuzma uh, plus tick inhibition, or as single agents, so we'll have to see how this has spun out in the future. Uh, it's a good question, and for the moment, uh, we have not seen data yet uh, from Hashtuzma in the neoadjuvant setting, but we're awaiting those trials. And the same thing with Enfortumab. There are now phase three trials with Enfortumab in the neoadjuvant uh, setting. How can urology and oncology clinics work together to better serve our patients? Any uh, words of wisdom? Dr. Steinberg first. Uh, that's always the uh, $64,000 question. I think that, that certainly in the academic setting, uh, it's very common for the medical oncologists and the urologists to, to work as one team and, and to have multidisciplinary clinics or, or to uh, refer back and forth. In, in, in the real world for urology, I really do believe that uh, uh, there's going to be a time in the not-too-distant future where urologists are giving uh, their own checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, uh, Pfizer has uh, uh, cesalimab, which is a subcutaneously delivered PD-1 inhibitor. I think that urologists will um, uh, gravitate to that uh, rapidly because of the ease of, of administration. Having said that, the IRAEs with the sub-Q administration are going to be no different than the intravenous, and we certainly need to see the efficacy from the uh, CREST trial. But I think that, that urologists are going to be uh, getting more and more involved with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. I think it's going to be critically important for medical oncologists to educate the urologic community. Uh, one thing that is very, very clear to me is that urologists still have a tremendous role in the management of bladder cancer. We understand the anatomy. We understand uh, the functionality. Uh, we just have a much better grasp of what it is. All too often in medical school, um, and I think for a lot of non-urologists, the bladder is just this black box that has, you know, some nerves and tubes and, and, and nobody really knows how it works. And so I think that's why urologists are going to be critically important. And, and uh, uh, the medical oncologists have, have done all of the heavy lifting, so we know what the IRAEs should be. Uh, and it, it'll require uh, working together to make sure that we monitor the patients effectively. Thank you, Dr. Steinberg. Great question. Uh, Silpa, uh, Dr. Gupta, very quickly, in, in 10 seconds, <laughs> platinum refractory disease, you are between, uh, let's say, you know, you have enfortumab, you have erdafitinib, you have Pembro, second line, in an FGFR2 or 3-mutated patient. What do you, what do you use, yeah, second that's line? That's also a million-dollar question, uh, uh, Petros. Uh, all those are uh, reasonable options. Um, Given pembrolizumab has level one evidence in a prior platinum, I would use that first reserve FGFR inhibitor for later, and enfortumab would be a reasonable option too. Uh, having said that, a sequencing trial really needs to happen before we can say for sure. I like the answers of clinical trials, and all of these options are great. And thanks everybody for your time. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RPD 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Merck & Company Incorporated.